0: You know, when I first saw this episode, uh didn't actually like it that much. And looking back, I'm not 100% sure if it was just the one thing that pissed me off or what. Because I remember distinctly the one thing I didn't like about this episode. Dax! Um, <laughs> I know there's uh, certainly a lot of... The arguments that happen amongst DS9 fans about Jadzia Dax and Ezri Dax and the arguments about that, but uh, all I'm going to say is that in this episode, she actively pissed me off because she comes across as stubborn to the point of rudeness. And if there's one thing that just really pisses me off in general, it's rudeness. You know, if you... I, I'm actually, and I've said this before, I am more tolerant of you doing something, you know... Evil than if you doing something rude in fiction at least obviously it's like God That being said this episode does do something really nice it examines a fictional concept now To explain what I mean by that a little bit if I had a show Set in space or set in a fantasy world or whatever which dealt with the integral politics between different classes or different births or whatever well, that's something that's in real life. That's not a fictional concept. We have that. Real life, right? If I wanted to examine uh, the realities of being different, of trying to find your place, whether you want to fit in or be ostracized or have some kind of middle ground, we have that in real life. You know, I'm not going to keep going examples, but you get the idea. A fictional concept is something we do not have in real life. We cannot have in real life. And the trill is one of those things. It's one of the truly rare things. Uh, Well, I shouldn't say truly rare. It's not that rare. But it's certainly uncommon that Trek will discuss something that is an actual fictional concept. Now, this is true for most fiction in general, to be completely honest. Even, again, my own fiction. So I point the finger at myself as well on this one. But I like that they take this fictional concept and say, all right, let's try and do something with this. Let's look at this and see where we can go with this. And it's like, okay. And so they do something with this, even though Dax herself is basically a non-character. And that's probably the interesting thing to me. Dax is a stubborn mule, and then sits there saying nothing. I feel bad for Terry Farrell having I mean, to go in for the dot makeup, to literally st- sit there in a chair like this during takes, or however many hours, and have no lines of dialogue. She doesn't even come in until the, pretty much the end of the entire thing, when she's put on, uh, put on the witness stand. It's like, wow! Now, I do, I do very much like that DS9 does that, but I also like something else they do. This is something that DS9 does a lot of. And it's one of the things that I personally remember it most for. I know that sounds weird, but it's true. I remember DS9 for bringing up an issue and then leaving it unresolved. Let me explain what I mean, because that doesn't quite get it across. Too often, fiction in general, although TN, early TNG was pretty guilty of this, and TOS was pretty guilty of this, and, and sp- for, sp- for specific episodes as well, they bring up an issue, and then they st- and then the episode either literally or metaphorically says, this is the right answer to this issue, right? This is the right stance to take on this. And I don't like that. I never have. I don't like it when a work of fiction says this is the right path. Now, again, speaking as a writer, I understand how difficult it is to not do that. It's very difficult when you write a situation and you're so clearly biased one way or the other to try and present both sides of the argument. It is a difficult thing to do, so I'm not I'm not trying to get preachy myself here. It's just something that kind of irks me. You know, It's not a big deal. It's just, nah. But DS9 likes to bring up an issue and then not tell you which issue is right. It's like, here you go. Because the big issue they bring up here is, do the crimes of the host carry forward to future symbiotes? To, fu- to, to future, I guess, hosts It's actually the better. Wow. So the mere fact that I have to think about my terminology here really emphasizes the point. You know, does previous crime affect present individual? If present individual is arguably different than previous individual, and so forth and so on. <laughs> so, and that, le- that issue is left unresolved. It's funny because almost the entire episode is actually about that concept and that fictional concept, which we can't have in real life, and discussing it and analyzing and looking at the different sides of it rather than Dax themselves or anything else. The episode named Dax is actually about... I love that. Anyways, <clears throat> I also want to give a really quick uh, shout-out to the props department. I know this is a weird thing to bring up, but I don't bring it up all that often, nearly as often as I should. I've always had a lot of respect for the Star Trek props people. They are very innovative and very creative, because a lot of times they have nothing to work with, and like, okay, we need to turn this into something that looks alien. Uh, You know, and so you get a lot of the props, which of course have been made fun of over the years as they don't exactly age that well, but... If you think about it in context with how little they had to work with, it's pretty impressive. In this case, I want to give special mention to the Bajoran gavel. I uh, didn't actually really notice it until the first time she banged it on the thing. And I was like, wow, that is a really solid sound there. That, And then I looked at it, and I was like, okay, yeah, I can see where they're going with that. It's got this nice little you know, chasmed, cracked surface thing. And, and it makes this great sound when, when she gangs it. And it's got this little holster thing. I like that. I like it. Good stuff. Anyways couple quick tidbits, nitpicks, before I get into the episode proper. First of all, this is actually the first appearance of Raktagino on Deep Space Nine. Now, I don't actually know why Raktagino became a thing on Deep Space Nine, but it did. It became like the drink of choice. It got to the point where just about everyone, if they're thinking about drinking something, it's either root beer or Raktagino. One of the two, right? You know, Klingon coffee. And this is the first time it's mentioned, and I love that because it's it's kind of like how memes work in real life, isn't it? You can never predict what's going to become a meme. You can never predict how something is going to explode or become popular, people are going to repeat it or whatever. I've had that so many times in my own streams where something's happened and it's just sort of turned into a meme, right? So, I like the Ractagino thing. Also, uh, O'Brien is off station and Keiko is off visiting her mother. Her mother's celebrating her 100th birthday. Keiko's not that old. Now, as it happens, when I decided to look into this, it turns out we don't actually have an exact age for Keiko, so we're not 100% sure how old she is or what she was doing at this point in time. But I do find it interesting that other Trekkers and Trekkies have also decided to be like, well, hang on a second. (laughs) She's, I mean, (laughs) but her mother's a 100... The general estimate is that Keiko's mother had her when she was in her 60s. Now, that amuses me, because that was either done accidentally, just to kind of be like, eh, whatever, just throw out an age, or it was done on purpose to showcase the kind of society we have, where having a child at age 60 is not only possible, but normal, you know. And Lord knows that one thing that, in my opinion, at least, Starfleet, the Federation, is most advanced in would be medical science. But I digress. So then we have a really, probably the weakest part of the episode is the beginning. And it's weird because, I, I want to share something, Look, actually, if, if I may. Because the beginning part feels like it was written by someone else. And then the latter part feels like it was written by, you know, two separate entities here. Now, what's interesting is this story and teleplay was done by two separate people, D.C. Fontana and Peter Allen Fields. Now, I actually have a feeling that most of you know who D.C. Fontana is. Very, very prolific science fiction author who has written many things for Star Trek. And I feel like the first part of the thing is hers. Now, I don't mean that as an insult, and I'll discuss why in just a second, but... Peter Allen Fields, I imagine most of you are like, who the hell's he? Well, he's written a couple of Deep Space Nine episodes, and by a couple I mean quite a few. Um uh, let's see. There was this one episode, it's this really uh it's it's not a it's not a very well known episode. It's called In the Pale Moonlight was written by him. Yeah, that guy. So, anyways, now that I've made my point about the authors, let's continue forward. So Julian does this pathetic show of hitting on, like, like just transparently terrible, like, oh, hey, hit on, hit on, and she's like, nope, and then he decides to follow her, and then he puts in the most pathetic showing of trying to defend her, oh, and doesn't call in until after he's knocked out. This is probably, this is another time in which I think that the, the two versions of Julian Bashir do not mesh. I can't imagine any particular reason why, you know, the real Julian Bashir, the retconned, if you will, Julian Bashir would not either put his best into this or have enough of a brain to, as soon as he rounds the corner and sees what's going on, tap his comm badge. I actually did a quick test. Julian to ops. How long do you think that took to do that? Now, if you actually watch the episode, what happens is he turns in the corner, looks up. Uh, Dax! And then he runs down the corridor. That's a, maybe about four seconds before action starts happening. Four seconds is plenty of time to say, Julian to Ops, Dax is in trouble. Just pointing it out. And this is why I say it's a weak thing, because Dax puts in a pathetic showing. She, she just plays the helpless damsel in distress the entire time, which not only is kind of irritating that she's doing this at all, especially since she is conscious, I mean, she's basically walking along with them and asking questions of them, but in addition to that, she should probably recognize these people, since, you know, she used to be having sex with one of them, or rather, he used to be having sex with one of them, but nevertheless, the memory's there, right? And in addition to that... (laughs) Actually, you know what, I just realized I'm defeating my own argument. I do this sometimes. Let, Let me rewind a little bit. Dax is just a little bit too passive this whole time. However, it is possible, possible that Dax recognized what was going on and was just going along with it. The only reason I say that with such hesitance is because there's a scene where she's like, what do you want from me? And he identifies himself and she's like, oh my God. And there's this moment of recognition, right? Which to me indicates that she had no idea what was going on until that point. So, huh? The other point that irritates me is that Julian's a piece of cardboard. And again, I can't imagine genetically engineered Julian doing these things. The pathetic hitting on? Oh yeah, I could totally see that. We already discussed why, but oh no, and not do no. Now, those are my complaints. However, and I have this note here that says this is a weirdly good scene, but what the hell is Dax doing? I already talked about my complaints about Dax just kind of going along with it. But it is a weirdly good scene because there's some genuine tension, some genuine back and forth, and some good, the term is usually cat and mouse. You know, the, the, the bridge crew, or excuse me, the ops crew, it's going to take some getting used to not calling them bridge crew. The command staff, you know, trying and struggling to catch up with them and outmaneuver them. And they, of course, they have insider information from on the Cardassian station, thanks to their Cardassian allies, and blah, 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 blah. And so it, it just kind of goes back and forth. and It's actually really well done. And I like it. And it's it's honestly tense, and it's honestly interesting and engaging, especially since, the, you know, it, it was actually really, really close, and for a moment I'm like, oh, God! But then, Tractor Beam at the last second. Whew, that was well done, and that does feel like Fontana's style. The rest of the episode feels like Mr. Fields's style, because, like in The Pale Moonlight and many other episodes he's worked on, it's an examination and discussion, almost, of a dilemma. And to define this really quick, I know I've talked about this before, but just to define it, when I say the word dilemma, I mean, you know, no right answer. That's the whole point of a dilemma. That's what makes it a dilemma, as far as I'm concerned, is there's no right, clear, obvious answer. It's just, there's this answer and there's this answer. They both have ups and downs, and they both are basically equal under different circumstances, and you're supposed to really sit back and and be like, uh dilemma, right? So, then Mr., uh, I wrote down his name, Tandro. sure, that's his last name, but whatever, Tandro shows up and it's like, extradition treaty. Now, I wrote down my whole little discussion about this before I realized that the episode itself actually answers this question, but I had a question, why didn't he just open up with the treaty? Now, I had two answers for that. One was, why don't we go ahead and avoid causing political entanglements now and cause political entanglements later? In other words, do we want to front-load the red tape or back-load it? Because if we approach the Federation with this extradition treaty, there's going to be some meetings and all this stuff, and they're going to try to defend her and blah, blah, blah. We'll have to go through all this crap. We might not even win. Or we could just take her, kill her, and then, now that justice has been served... I'm satisfied, I got what I want, so now we'll go ahead and go through the red tape of justifying this to the Federation and having the hearings and the diplomatic talks, etc., etc. Now, and of course the episode itself actually shows why that's a valid thing, because the moment the extradition treaty thing comes up, it's like, oh, hey, yeah, we found a defense. But, of course, the episode does bring up the other concern, which is that this is a Bajoran station, and they might not have been okay with it for because Bajoran interests were involved, Cardassians, blah, blah, blah. Thing is, that feels more like an excuse to me. I think the political situation I outlined is actually more likely. In other words, the intention here to really boil this down to its base level is they would rather... Uh, ask forgiveness for what they've already done, then seek permission for what they want to do. Because they, it's so obvious, Tandra, the, the guy, the kid, is so impersonally invested in this entire thing. He's chomping at the bit. This is a crusade for him. And what I find most hysterical about that is because that offers one of the two perspectives of this entire trial. It is also the perspective shared by Cisco. Cisco is not in this for any reason other than to defend someone he perceives as his friend. And that's all both of them care about. Their personal interest in this case. Or this hearing, excuse me. Now, what I find especially interesting about that is that this is an intensely political matter. And in fact, the actual root of the matter is a political interest. Trying to find out the the traitor and murderer of the situation. And in addition to that... This is a deeply political matter because of the very nature of things like extradition treaties and this unique situation of, are you guilty of previous hosts' crimes? That is an intensely political matter, but both people fighting it are doing it for personal reasons. And I love that dynamic. I love the contrast between the two. And it's very well written. Again, credit to Peter Allen Fields and D.C. Fontana. I don't know how much of the rest of that she wrote, but both of them are excellent writers, so I feel uh, comfortable giving credit to both. So what I also like is pretty early on in the episode, Cisco's like, no, I knew the man. I knew the man, I knew the man, I knew the man. And then Odo says, did you know the man or did you know the symbiote? And Cisco has no answer to that. I like that because, as usual, Odo just cuts straight to the heart of the matter. I mean, there's basically, Odo tends to have two presentations so far in the series. Either that whole uh, deeply cynical, bitter perspective on life thing, which is effectively either a lie or just untrue. You know, we've seen that a couple times before. Or he just cuts straight to the heart of things and is like, this is what's actually going on. He's done this with Kira already as well, just to use one example off the top of my head. And so he cuts straight to the heart of this matter, just like that, because that's the real question, and it's a question again the episode never answers. Tadro uh, himself uses the saltwater argument. Now, I've heard the saltwater argument used many times in debates, in arguments, in political discussions, in concepts of morality and philosophy. It boils down to this: salt, water. Mix, salt water, separate, salt water, okay? Now, all of that sounds nice and simple, but when it comes to definitions, at what point does the salt cease being salt? Do we blame the salt for the actions of the salt water? Do we blame the water for the actions of the salt? The dynamic between these three entities is the entire point of the discussion, and I emphasize that three part because that is, well, okay, now we're getting a little bit into opinion. <laughs> it has always been my opinion in those debates that there are three distinct concepts being discussed. Salt, water, and saltwater. That these three should be kept in mind, not just two. In my opinion, most people who are using the saltwater argument make the mistake of insisting there are only two variables. two 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 concepts there, when I insist there are three This ties neatly into the whole Trill thing. Now, if you asked me my opinion, I'd say there's three entities involved in any given situation. There's Curzon, there's Dax, and there's Curzon-Dax. Jadzia was a completely separate entity before, as Cisco himself points out. Dax was a completely separate entity before, and now we have Jadzia-Dax. Three entities. Boom, boom, boom. To me, that's very simple, but I have heard this argued many times that there's only two, and Tondro, Though he never states that outright, tends to insist that there are only two. Every, every one of his arguments, every one of his debates is focusing on the idea that there are only two entities involved, the host and the symbiote, refusing to acknowledge the symbiotic relationship between the two, crafting, temporarily, a unique entity. Now, it is worth noting that I am not absolutely right about this either. I'm That's why I kept adding that word opinion to beginning my sentences, because I don't know either. And, as usual, I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on this one, because this is a complicated issue. What if Curzon had been guilty? No, well, he wasn't. But what if he had? What do we do with Jodzia Dax if Curzon Dax committed a crime? Now, I'm using my terminology very clearly here. Because what do we do with Jodzia Dax, third entity, my opinion, if Curzon Dax, third entity, my opinion, did actually, provably, 100%, no really, committed a crime That needs to be settled. Let's also assume for the sake of argument that it's not a life or death thing. Because, let's be honest, let's just all be 100% clear about this, when you get the death penalty into things, when capital punishment comes up, things get murky really fast, and things get muddled. And a lot of people get a lot more heated about those kind of debates than, say, you know, civil service, or serving time in a penal colony, or or in a workers' comp, or whatever, right? You know, some kind of punishment that involves you having to pay out $10,000 is something people are willing to discuss in a relatively open and unbiased environment. Relatively. You start talking about someone who's going to be killed if they're found guilty and things get a lot more tense. We've always, we've had this for, for many, many years, this whole capital punishment thing. And I'm not laying any judgment one way or the other. So let's assume Curzon Dax is going to be fined 10,000 bars of gold-pressed latinum for some criminal act he did, okay? And he is 100% at fault. And that that crime was never settled in his lifetime. You know, Curzon passed on. So, what do we do with Jadzia Dax? Because he was guilty, but she is not. But they were she, and he is... You see the problem? Now, I could just sit and debate this all day. This is a fascinating topic to me. I'm not going to waste your time on that. I'm here to talk about an episode of Star Trek. But oh my God, I, I love this. I, I love that they does this. And now going back with an a- analysis mode on, I'm, I'm engaged. I'm like, yes, God. Almost every one of my notes has to do with everything I've been talking to you from. I've, I've only had to glance at my notes occasionally because all of this comes so, re- so readily because it's just such an interesting thing to me. Not that Star Trek isn't interesting to me. I didn't mean to imply that. <laughs> Let me check my notes really quick. Let's, let's move on from this. So, I I want to mention another thing, just as an aside. Uh, I didn't actually look up who the director of this episode was, but whoever they are, they do a good job of directing, if a little basic. It's it's a lot of very, very... <sighs> directing 101 things, but executed well. I, so I don't mean it as an insult. For example, Cisco is talking to Dax towards the beginning of the episode. Excuse me. Cisco's talking to Judzia Dax. <laughs> I'm just going to keep calling her Dax. And... He's talking to her through this shelving. And she's stonewalling him. And he's talking to her through the shelving, right? There's the literal barrier in between them. They can still see each other, but, you know. Very basic blocking, but it's there. And, of course, when they move off the topic and start talking of friendship, they move away and the shelf is no longer in between them. Another good example of blocking, basic but well done, is when they're, uh, when Cisco and Kira are having the confrontation with Tondro, in Cisco's office. And Cisco is standing right there, front and center, and Kira's a little bit back and off to the side. And Cisco is, is like, ah, oh, and Tanjo's just kind of trying to maintain this, this position of authority. You can tell just by his body language. And then Cisco effectively hands the baton off to Kira. And as he's doing so, and as he discusses things, he kind of shifts his position back. So now Cisco is back and off to the side, and Kira is now front and center. And the two of them... And it's and it's wonderful, the the whole dynamic of that, as this now becomes a Bajoran problem, and Kira does actually have Cisco's back on this. Although, quick question for you guys, and as always, I'd love to hear your comments on this. Do you think Kira had Cisco's back because she has some loyalty to him? I mean, this isn't that far into the show, so it's entirely feasible she does not have any loyalty to him yet, or at the very least, not enough to really go to bat for him in a political matter. Or... Do you think she went to bat for him because what she was saying was absolutely the truth? They were pissed off that their their station, Bajoran station, was invaded with from Cardassian allies thanks to Cardassian intel, so you can go piss off because we don't have an extradition treaty. It is also possible it is both, but the real question I'm asking is how much of it do you think like, how much loyalty do you think Kira has to Cisco as of this point in time? So then odo uh Blackmail's quark, which is awesome, as ever any scene with Quark and Odo is awesome, and this is no exception. I don't have much to add just that it's awesome um apparently they were they they later on would actually make a meeting room on the station as an actual independent set. It's no surprise they didn't do it this early on because. I hate to keep bashing this point in, but DS9 was really not doing all that well in its early years. And while they certainly had more budget than Season 1 TNG did, they were also on a lot of pressure to not go over budget. And going over budget would have probably actually killed the show. So, not building a new set for, like, what is this, the seventh episode or whatever, probably was the right call to make. We'll do that when we can justify it to the money people a little bit better. I want to give real quick... Props to, and I hope I'm saying their names right here, Anne Haney and Fionella Flanagan. I really hope I'm pronouncing their names right. I have a great deal of respect for both of them. It's the, the former is the actress who plays the Arbiter, who also played Miss Uxbridge in the episode Survivors over on TNG. And the latter is the woman who plays, uh, what's, uh, the wife of the traitor guy. Uh, you know, the, 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 the lover of Curzon, who also has played and Soong's wife back in TNG and played Valar, the unorthodox Vulcan over on Enterprise. All of these roles are fantastic and I actually like these actresses both in Star Trek and out. And I just wanted to give huge props because both of them do a phenomenal performance of their roles in this episode. The Arbiter woman is exactly perfect. I, I, I love it. It's actually diff, more difficult than you'd think to come across as old and I hesitate to use the word crotchety, but, you know, old and uh, not willing to put up with any crap without going over that line and becoming actually irritating. But I think the Arbiter woman, I don't even think she had a name, but, you know, Anne Haney, the woman who played her, hits that perfect balance of being, you know, old and unwilling to put up with any crap without ever actually frustrating or irritating me or making me go, ah, come on. So... Definite props there. And of course, the woman playing the wife does a phenomenal job of portraying the array of emotions she's going through and how deeply personal this is to her, while at the same time keeping in mind the significant political ramifications both for her and her world. It's awesome. The fact that she is the one who ends up resolving the episode is not insignificant. I think it's one of those quiet little things. I mentioned earlier that this really isn't a Dax episode. Not really. This is an episode about a concept, but if you forced me to sit down and name a main character, it would actually be her. You know, I didn't even write down her name, the the character's name, but the woman, the wife of the great general hero who was apparently not a person she particularly liked. They don't say anything specific, but it's clear she has no fond memories of him, and he was a traitor, and he was killed by his own troops for being a traitor. She does a great job. And this episode, in many ways, revolves around her and her choices rather than Dax. Dax is more the satellite to her story in this episode. Because it's all about her coming to grips with the with the reality of her personal feelings and knowledge of the situation. And it rests within her power to resolve this in more than one way. She could have gone to her own government and said the truth about this. She, it, it is implied that she has proof of this, that she knows that her husband was a traitor, and that she knows that her own, his own troops killed him. And there's probably other people who would attest to the same if they felt the inclination to. But that would be a very politically dangerous move. I know it's hard to think of this in real life terms, cause the last, God, like 50 years now at least, maybe more, uh, has been filled with what has been referred to as the age of cynicism. We don't really have a lot of heroes anymore, right? So there's no people we really like to put up on a pedestal the way that we used to throughout all of human history. But just picture for a moment, like, I don't know. Um, let's go with George Washington, because this has actually been done although it didn't have impact i'm from the states obviously so george washington you know oh my god this pillar of a man who did all these amazing things and in the interests of fairness historically speaking the man did do a lot of amazing things but what if he didn't what if it came to light that all of those incredible feats most, most of them during the American Revolutionary War. But regardless, all of the things that are attributed to him and all the things that made him this great man were revealed to him have all been lies. And in fact, he was actually a bastard who was constantly trying to sell us out to the British or, and, and was spitting on the French who, Let's not forget where our, where our stalwart allies during the American Revolutionary War and was just this horrible person. And then he ended up being killed because he actually did this horrible thing and blah, blah, you know, imagine if he was demonized and that demonization turned out to be true. Now, again, it's hard to parallel this to real life because we just don't have that kind of a concept anymore. But can you think of the kind of impact that would have if this was 30 years after his passing? when the United States was so young that we were barely an actual country yet. We were still struggling with issues of national currency and cohesion of federal versus state, right? Imagine if in that era, all of a sudden, this person who was the hero of the American Revolution was revealed, truthfully, to be an absolute fraud. You can see how much of an impact that would have on a nation even if that nation happens to be of a galactic or planetary or whatever level. So you can see that side of the argument that she's going on through here. And she even says it with this wonderful poise of bitterness. Again, great props to the actress. She comes across with this horrible, just this poisoned nature of just, ugh, I have to be this. She's doing it better than I do, of course, because I'm not an actor. But, you know, I have to I have to endure. I have to be the, the stalwart wife who will never marry again in honor of the great hero, even though I know he was this terrible person, right? Then there's the personal side of things. She didn't know Curzon had passed on. She and now we find out later, but Curzon's death and the passing to Jadzia actually happened fairly recently to the events of now, so it makes a degree of sense that she wouldn't have heard about this yet. But the idea that Curzon, has gone, and again the actress gets across that personal connection as well. The you know the the, the tears of it, the the consequences of what Jadzia. Dax is now going through, and the courage to stand up and admit something that is going to stain her and her, her uh, uh, image, I guess is the word I'm going for, forever. You know, the, the, based on the code at the end of the episode, it's pretty clear that her people will continue to rise up and show the great George Washington, I forget the guy's name, you know, the George Washington dude forever, and she will forever be shamed as the wife who, 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 was a sh- who shamed her husband's name and blah, 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 and she was willing to take that personal sacrifice to save one person who was only partially connected to the previous person but that itself does tie in and and shows why Dax's story is orbiting hers, because Dax herself, that is to say, Jadzia Dax, for the guilt she felt, for the emotions that she felt that he did, the consequences of that were something that she felt she could not bypass. Now, we find out throughout the course of DS9 and a little bit in TNG that the Trills actually have this whole rule of, you know, you're supposed to kind of let go of the past when you move on to the future. Now, that rule is routinely ignored by certain people, but it's obvious why. And this episode shows that more clearly than any other. I, I, I like Terry Farrell's presentation of a couple of scenes in this. The scenes where she's not just sitting there and glaring at someone, in other words, when she's actually allowed to act. Because those scenes show a woman, a young woman who is torn up and grief and guilt stricken over what has happened and feels Honor bound. Honor bound to in, to to maintain and 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 commit to a promise that she never made. Although you could argue she did make this, and this goes back to the salt and water argument all over again. So then, uh, Cisco goes to bat on this. Sorry, I haven't even gotten to the hearing yet in terms of discussing. I don't actually have much to discuss about the hearing. It's good stuff. You know, the Arbiter's great. They got a good actress he, uh, actress for her. They got a good actor for Tondro. Cisco is Avery Brooks. He's awesome. Um, they do a pretty typical back and forth. And we have almost a more low-key cat and mouse thing like we had at the beginning of the episode. You know, the idea of uh, he pulls forth Julian Bashir, who starts listing the medical reasons why Jadzia Dax is not Kurzon Dax. And then Tandra comes up and mentions that even if Jadzia Dax is not Kurzon Dax, Dax is still Dax. Again, his whole perspective being that there's only the two rather than the three and Cisco's argument going down to personality and medical uh, stations and the differentiation between the three entities, but Tondro insists that because the memories endure forward... You could tell early on that Tondro's initial thing was, this is stupid, this is clearly Dax. Oh, I have to take this seriously. And while we see Sisko powwowing and trying to figure out what he's going to do, we, we don't see Tandro considering his options, but you can tell at some point he decided, okay... I'm willing to admit that Jodzia Dax, that is just, dis- I'm sorry, cause he doesn't think that way, excuse me. I'm willing to admit that Jodzia is innocent of this, but Dax is absolutely guilty, cause remember, he's convinced of the guilt. So I have to try and differentiate Dax from Jodzia, then I can take Dax and, and kill Dax. And you can tell that's his shift in strategy over the course of the hearing. It's good stuff, it's all good stuff. Very well written, very well acted. Um, there's this great scene where Cisco is sitting with, Bashir, and Kira. It's actually before some of the events I just referenced. And it's wonderfully human. It's the kind of thing I couldn't see Picard ever doing. And this is how you differentiate Sisko from Picard. You don't literally have him say, I'm not Picard. Picard is the kind of person who has his personal beliefs and morals and systems, but he also has his responsibilities and duties before that. Picard hated the Cardassian occupation. And this is made very clear many times. But he didn't do anything to to resolve it that was outside of the bounds of the law. Picard is lawful good, just to, to state that as bluntly and simply as I can. Sisko, by contrast, is probably closer to neutral good, not really leaning towards chaos or lawful in any particular way. And this speech he gives demonstrates that so clearly you know, we need to find some kind of evidence, some kind of backstory about the Trill that shows that the you know, future Trill are not responsible, future hosts are not responsible for the crimes of the previous hosts. And then Kira says, what if we find evidence that they are? And then Cisco says, that that evidence is wrong! But I need to hear it anyways, because I need to know what I'm dealing with. In other words, Cisco, <laughs> this is great in its own way, Picard has his you know, responsibility, morals, or excuse me, responsibility and duties, and then his morals and ethics are bound to that. Cisco has his morals and ethics with his duty and responsibility bound to that. And this is something that'll be true many, many, many times in the future. That's how you differentiate a character right there. So, hearing goes on. I actually don't have much else to say about it. Um, Tandro does a lot of semantics and a lot of bantering. Uh, in a dancing around the issue kind of a thing. And it's, Tondra doesn't quite stray into technically territory, but he does try to do something that I've seen most lawyers do in real life, which is, you're looking at an entire field of grass, but on the edge of that grass over there, there's a couple of weeds. And so you phrase the question, are there weeds in this field? And the answer to that question is yes. And then they just, Stop there. Because the implication is that this, you know, if you, if you're not looking at the field, if you don't have this information at hand, the way it has been phrased and presented is that this field is full of weeds, or that at the very least has significant weeds, not one weed over in the corner, or two weeds over in the corner, on the edge, that haven't been dealt with because they're not sure which side of the line that, that lands. You see where I'm going with this? Lawyers do this all the time. It's trying, it's, it's a form of slanting. Trying to present a truthful fact in a way that implies something rather than trying to just state a truthful fact if the lawyer was interested in the truth they would say does this grass field have a couple of weeds on the edge that haven't been taken care of because they're not sure if it's their property or not that is the whole truth of the situation but Tondra doesn't do that steady says are there weeds in this field and the answer to that has to be yes unfortunately i don't really have a lot else to share here i'm looking at my notes here just kind of glancing up and down this is a really good episode i'm I'm astonished i didn't like this so much i mean i get why dax's stonewalling still pissed me off even this time through it's like oh come on do something and it's it's even more aggravating because when she's allowed to actually say something it's great it's like yes it's the same thing that happened in the intro actually Like, bits and pieces of the intro were so frustrating it made me want to facepalm. But then the overall engagement of the chase and the action and the tension was fantastic. It's weird, isn't it? Anyways, I suppose that's just kind of DSpace9 in a nutshell. I hope you've enjoyed. I'm gonna go have a nice... Hang on, hang on. Here we go. A nice cup of Rectogino. I don't know how much of this is even visible on the green screen. It's a green cup. Anyways, I'll see you around, guys. (laughs)